Please open your Bibles, if you have one, to Psalm 119. After finishing a section in James, we now return for two weeks to Psalm 119. Um, as we alternate back and forth, going through a chunk of James, a chunk of Psalm 119. <clears throat> in the last few weeks in James have been kind of heavy, as James reaches the climax of his call to repentance to the reader for faithlessness, for double-mindedness. And I'd hoped perhaps this morning's text in Psalm 119 would be a turn of pace, but in some respects it continues more of the same. The Lord is not done with us, it appears yet. So if you have your Bibles open to Psalm 119, verse 113, if you don't have a Bible, you'll find the text on the back of the bulletin, the insert. I'd like to begin by reading these eight verses and then having a word of prayer, and we'll begin. Psalm 119, verses 113 to 120. I hate the double-minded, but I love your law. You are my hiding place and my shield. I hope in your word. Depart from me, you evildoers, that I may keep the commandments of my God. Uphold me according to your promise that I may live And let me not be put to shame in my hope. Hold me up that I may be safe and have regard for your statutes continually. You spurn all who go astray from your statutes, for their cunning is in vain. All the wicked of the earth you discard like dross. Therefore, I love your testimonies. My flesh trembles for fear of you, and I'm afraid of your judgments. Lord God, I pray that you would give us eyes to see and ears to hear, that we might understand um, what we should love, what we should hate, where our hope should be fixed, what we should fear, so we might live faithfully, pleasing to you in this difficult and challenging world. Establish your word as that which creates reverence for you. In Jesus' name, amen. As we return to Psalm 119, I'll remind you some of the overarching themes we've seen in the book. Um, It's the single longest composition in Scripture, one chapter, and it focuses primarily on the Word of the Lord and the Lord of the Word. Nearly every verse, with one or two rare exceptions, our passage this morning having them, is spoken to God about His Word. We see how an exile or someone in a situation like an exile living in a strange land struggles through suffering, through discouragement, through joy, through sorrow, through adversity to be faithful to the word of the Lord and the Lord of the word. Uh, Most recently in Psalm 119, coming out of a valley of affliction, uh, he recommitted himself to the Lord. I want you to see this in in verse 105. Your word is a lamp to my feet, a light to my path. I've sworn an oath and confirmed it to keep your righteous rules. I know frequently in our own lives we we have seasons, times where we recommit ourselves to the Lord. I think what we see in our stanza today are the steps it takes to actually live that out. Perhaps you've made a recommitment to the Lord, made a decision, I'm going to really follow the Lord faithfully. Start, stop playing around, stop with half measures. 
only to have that resolution erode. If we are going to be faithful to the Lord, if we are going to be faithful in, in, in serving him, being obedient to him, then we will need the right hatred, the right love, the right hope, the right fear. We see those commitments fleshed out this morning. Um, it's got some difficulties in it, and we will begin by looking at his loyal commitment, his loyal commitment. This psalm modeling for us, God giving us a song to sing as we strive to be faithful to him. His loyal commitment, verses 113 to 115. I hate the double-minded, but I love your law. You are my hiding place and my shield. I hope in your word. Depart from me, you evildoers, that I may keep the commandments of my God. So the point A here, the first point, is having the right affections. The right affections. And we face one of the biggest challenges in our text right here in this opening verse. I hate the double-minded. That's, that's a challenging declaration. We need to wrestle with to think rightly about. It's not the first time the psalmist has indicated he hates something. Back in verse 104, the end, he hates every false way. And that's easier. Hating ideas, even hating deeds and actions. I think we can wrap our heads around more clearly. Here, it's people. Let's, let's not mince words. It's people that he says he hates. He hates the double-minded what, what are we to make of this? this? This is such a challenging notion that some suggest that Jesus himself does away with this. Um, C.S. Lewis, I think, in error on this point in his comments in the Psalms, thinks that the Old Testament ethic was to hate your enemy, love your neighbor, then Jesus comes along and in the Sermon on the Mount says, you've heard it said, but I tell you, love your enemies, Luke six twenty seven, And so under this reading... We have a new and better ethic, and so what's expressed here is inferior. There's a problem with that view. Turn to Psalm 5. Psalm 5, verse 5. The boastful shall not stand before your eyes. You hate all evildoers. God hates. So we can't simply dodge this by saying, well, in the Old Testament, but in the New Testament, because God has not changed from testament to testament. So what, what is meant here? We've got to consider what does it mean to hate and who are the double-minded? Well, the first thing I'd help out with is I think our term hate in English is loaded unnecessarily with baggage. Um, I looked up in the American Heritage Dictionary, 5th edition, hate, and here's the definition I got, to feel strong dislike or hostility towards. Strong dislike or disapproval and hostility. Now, we may add in things like, I want you to die and I want to hit you. Biblically, that's more akin to murder and anger and rage. When Jesus speaks about being angry with your brother, wanting harm to come to him. Remember, hatred and love. Love, the opposite of love as seen in the parable of the Good Samaritan were simply the guys who walked by, couldn't be bothered. I want nothing to do with you. Distance and separation. 
Um, the other notion we may have is to think either you're loving or you're hating, and that's probably why we wrestle with this so much. Turn to John 3. I would suggest to you that in a very real sense, God both hates and loves the same people. I think John 3 can demonstrate this as we try to wrap our heads about what is, what's being expressed here. One of, the, one of the good things about going verse by verse through books of the Bible is we can't dodge hard passages. We don't generally sing songs based on verse 113. Now, John 3, 16 begins with a declaration of God's love. John 3, 16, for God so loved the world. He loved the world in this way. And in John's gospel, the world is the evil, unbelieving, rebellious world. This isn't a declaration of God's love for the, the planet Earth, but the people, the world, and the world system. How much did he love the world? He sent his son to die for them. That whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. God, God loves rebellious, fallen, sinful man so much He gave up his own son to die on a cross for him, to bear the sins of his people. Keep reading. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only son of God. This is the judgment. Light has come into the world. People love the darkness rather than the light because their works are evil for everyone who does Wicked things, evil, whoever does wicked things hates the light, does not come to the light. Now jump to the end of the chapter to verse 36. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. What that means is for unbelievers in the same chapter, God has expressed tremendous love towards them. How so? He sent his Son to die for them. So in a very real sense in John 3, God loves rebellious, unbelieving man. What greater expression could he give of that love than to send his son? And yet in a very real sense, right now, God's wrath abides on them. He is angry with them. He is fully prepared to judge them. So I think in a very real sense, we can say God is loving the world and God is angry at and in hostility to the world. It's not either or. Now, ultimately, that will resolve. When we come to Jesus Christ in faith, his anger is satisfied through the perfect sacrifice of the Lord Jesus Christ, and he has nothing but love for his children. There is no wrath remaining. Ultimately, those who will perish in hell, there there is no love. It will resolve itself. But right now and in time and in space and in this world, our God loves the world and his wrath abides over the world. It's a little more complicated. So back to Psalm 119. I think something similar is in view. I do not think Jesus commands to love your enemies, especially as he informs it, is in conflict with with this verse here, I hate the double-minded. I hate the double-minded. I think our our strophe here gives some help in explaining what he means. He's not planning to do evil to them. He's not planning to harm them. Primarily, his hatred of the double-minded is expressed in his desire to be separate from them. Verse 115, depart from me, you evildoers. 
And ultimately in view, he considers their end. Verse 18, 118 and 119. You spurn all who go astray from your statutes. Their cunning is in vain. All the wicked of the earth you discard like dross. God will judge them and deal with them. And so I think simultaneously as we deal with those who are in opposition to our God, we've got we to get to double-minded here in a moment, we can simultaneously not have fellowship with them, not have commonality with them, not love the things they love. We are on different teams, for lack of a better term. We do not approve of how they live. And yet we're not looking down our nose at them. We're not trying to hurt them. When, when they need cups of water, we give them cups of water. When they ask us to go one mile, we go two miles. We preach the words of life to them. We call on them to, to, to change their allegiance, to, to love our God, to be part of his family. And yet, make no mistake, at the final judgment, we will not be interceding for the lost, but we will be cheering on our God in triumph. So the psalmist here declares, I hate the double-minded. And I think we'll see evidence even in the psalm. And he knows that same double-mindedness potentially is inside of him. This links up also with James, does it not? We've considered double-mindedness in James. And the Hebrew has a similar idea to the Greek. It's an inward division, a lack of integrity, a split in the middle. Um, The word in one sense never occurs anywhere else in the Old Testament, but it shares some connection verbally and certainly thematically with 1 Kings 18.21. Elijah goes and confronts the prophets of Baal and the people of Israel are there. And Elijah came near and said to all the people, how long will you go limping between two different opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal, then follow him. And the people did not answer him a word. And considering in the last two weeks that really the worst position to be in is the lukewarm, double-minded. We considered how in Jeremiah 3, when the Lord speaks of the ten northern tribes forsaking him like an adulterous wife, they leave and they never come back. The southern two tribes, Judah, forsake him, but they come back in pretense, and God says the ten northern tribes are more righteous. The double-minded are in the worst seat possible. People that want to play games with God, people that want respectable religion, People that don't want to take things too seriously. They want to hedge their bets, we'll see. They want to have a foot in both camps. They want to serve two masters. The psalmist has adversaries. We've seen this. Princes are against him. He has people plotting against him, slandering him. And there are some double-minded people, and he wants nothing to do with them. And again, this fits in with what we saw in James 4, right? James chapter 4, you adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. And he goes on when he calls them to repentance, and he says, purify your hearts, you double-minded. Why? Because in James 4, I want to serve God, and I want the things of this world. James, in our, our psalmist this morning, as he strives to be faithful to God, to keep the covenant that he has sworn, I've sworn an oath and confirmed it, wants nothing to do with these double-minded people. Why? In James 4, they've put themselves in hostility with God. 
The psalmist here is simply reciprocating. The psalmist is simply reciprocating. God would have his body on earth reflect his judgments in heaven. And so for those who who want to play games with God, dabble with faith, as the Lord reveals and exposes that, they're not sort of okay. They're actually in the worst seat, the worst place possible, suffering the greatest condemnation. And so if we're to be faithful to the Lord, our affections will line up with his affections. And those who he is in hostility with, in a very real sense, we are as well. Not that we want harm to come to them. We, we would have them repent and be saved. We'd have them turn. But ultimately, as they are in conflict with our God, we recognize that enmity between us and them. Right affections. And of course, the corollary to this is, but I love your law. And again, love and hate are flip sides of the same coin. Loving something brings me in opposition to that which threatens the thing I love. My anger at the person who would hurt my wife or my children is proportional to my love for them. Part of my expression of my love for them is my anger and opposition to whatever would hurt them. And here, he's putting, again, the double-minded in opposition with this love of the Lord. Because I love your law, those who are hypocritical, those who are half-hearted, those who are lukewarm... I'm in opposition to. I disapprove. I have strong dislike for. Of course, this is in keeping with what our Lord Jesus said, that no servant can serve two masters. You'll either hate the one and love the other, or he'll be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. So as you attempt to pursue faithfulness and fidelity to God, Understand those religious people or those quote-unquote Christians who want to play games, take half measures, are, are actually getting in the way of your and my pursuit of holiness. There's, there's a real divide and opposition here. He goes on in verse 114 with the right confidence expressing in part why he loves God's law and possibly suggesting some of the motivations of the double-minded. He says, you are my hiding place and my shield, I hope, in your word. You're my hiding place and shield, I hope, in your word. The right confidence. As he has already considered in this psalm the dangers he faces, he has one and only one hope. He is not hedging his bets. Rather, the Lord God is his hope. Hope, his shield, his hiding place. This is pictures of protection, right? What is my protection from that which threatens me in this world? The psalmist is the Lord God. Habitually in Israel, they're, they're flirting with idolatry. It was always about hedging bets. Um, the, the reason why they'd go worship the Ashtaroths and the Baals, because they needed it to rain. They needed their crops to reproduce. They needed kids. And the Lord is God, yes, but Baal might make it rain, and best to hedge my bets. It's economics, as it always is. And so they go and try to do both. And the Lord rebuked it. 
And here, these double-minded, we'll see them described a little bit later as those who turn from, go astray from your statutes. He, by contrast, has not hedged his bets. He, by contrast, has one hope, one defense, one shield, one hiding place. Psalm 20, verse 7, some trust in chariots and some in horses, but we trust in the name of the Lord our God. I think part of the double-minded is not having that hope, that inward division. Maybe, maybe the things in this world can protect me. Maybe the things in this world will provide surety and certainty. So he has the right confidence. He hopes in God's word. My hope is in the promises of God. My hope is in what God has said. That, that's my hope, he, he declares. A singular hope. So he's got right affections. An understanding. Loving God not only demands you love him, it also means you feel something about those in opposition to him. You, you cannot love the Lord your God and be friends with those who are at war with him. You can't. It's disloyalty. Any, any more than a husband or wife can be faithful and have friends, flirtations with those who would pull them away from them. And so he's got a right affections. He's got a right confidence leading to a right devotion. And here's the expression of that hatred. Depart from me, you evildoers. So first, they're described as the double-minded. And, and I think for those people, they, they try to think of themselves as on the fence. And what we find out is really they're, they're on the other team. They're in the camp of the evildoers. And the, the expression of, I hate the double-minded, is seen in his desire to separate from evildoers. And, and why? That he might keep the commandments of his God. And this this gets back to some New Testament ideas about fellowship, walking together. Uh, Let let me just read to you 2 Corinthians 6.14. Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. What partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? What fellowship has light with darkness? If your best friends hate your God, you, you may want to question your love for him. You may want to question where you're at. The people you feel most at home with, most commonality with, you most want to spend your time with, are at best double-minded or at worst rank enemies. It does not speak well of where you are at. Faithfulness to the Lord wants no fellowship, no commonality. Oh, we want them saved. We want them redeemed. We want to help them where we can. But my love for the Lord pits me, in a very real sense, against those who are opposed to him. Depart from me, you evildoers, that I may keep the commandments of my God. And I think he also knows that spending time with such people will erode his own conviction to be faithful to God. It's hard enough to be faithful if people around you are compromising, telling you to stop being so extreme. All things in moderation, except, of course, the application of that maxim. Um, No, depart from me that I may keep the commandments of my God. And again, 1 Corinthians 15, do not be deceived. Bad company ruins good morals. 
If you want to be faithful to the Lord, it will express itself in the company you keep. It will express itself in the friendships you have. It will express itself in every area of your life. He has made an oath and confirmed it to keep God's rules. And we've seen his affections fall in line, modeling God's affections. His hope is singular. His confidence is in the Lord. And his devotion to the Lord is seen both in his desire to keep God's commandments and to separate from those that might prove a snare to him. Right devotion. Next, verses 116 to 117, is focused prayer. Here, here we get to the, um, the requests of the psalm. Really one request with some varying reasons given. Uphold me according to your promise that I may live. And let me not be put to shame in my hope. Hold me up that I may be safe and have regard for your statutes continually. His focused Prayer. First, right desire. Right desire. He wants the Lord to hold him up according to his promise. And the logic is this. I have not hedged my bets. I am singularly focused and devoted on you. Therefore, my hope is that you will be faithful to your word. Therefore, O Lord, keep your word and hold me up. Because all my eggs are in one basket. He calls on the Lord to keep his promise and uphold him. Uphold me according to your promise that I may live. And as we've seen in Psalm 119, that the threat of death is not hyperbolic. With his real adversaries, real people gunning for him. Um, I, I think this is a real concern. Uphold me that I may live and let me not be put to shame in my hope. Lord, in contrast to these double-minded, in contrast to these people playing games, I staked it all on your faithfulness. Uphold me so that I can live and that I will not be put to shame in my hope. We've seen what his hope is. His hope is in God's word. So there's an implied also, Lord, for your reputation's sake, for your name's sake, uphold me. And again and again, we see the psalmist and biblical writers reasoning with God this way. Our God intends to prove to all watching his faithfulness. And so his desire is both for his own life and being upheld and God's name and reputation be upheld. Because his hope is in God's word. He doesn't want to be put to shame in his hope. He doesn't want God's word to appear to fail. So... Hold me up, uphold me according to your promise that I may live, and let me not be put to shame. The right desire. Next, the right purpose. The right purpose. Hold me up again or sustain me that I may be safe and have regard for your statutes continually. Which is remarkable. I want to live so that I can continue to serve and obey you. He also wants to avoid shame. He also wants God's word to be seen as trustworthy. These are the reasons he's calling to deliver me. And it's convicting because frequently when I want deliverance, it's because I'm scared. I don't want to suffer. And those are fine. It's the other things in here as well that need to be present. 
A desire to be faithful to the Lord. A desire that God's righteousness might be vindicated. Earlier in Psalm 119, he's been praying a lot about being put to shame. Psalm 119, verse 6. Then I shall not be put to shame, having my eyes fixed on all your commandments. One of the ways we can tell if we're really being faithful and trusting in the Lord is if we find ourselves in the situation where either God shows up and keeps his word or I'm undone. That's where the psalmist finds himself here. Hold me up. Uphold me. I don't want to be put to shame. I don't want to die. I don't want your word to be put to shame, to appear to drop to the ground. And I want to go on serving you. That's his focused prayer. Which brings us finally, verses 118 to 120, to his controlling fear. His controlling fear. And here I think it becomes clear that this is not self-righteousness. I think one of the reasons we can really, and rightly so, shy away from that opening verse, I hate the double mind, is we can bring in overtones of self-righteousness and contempt, looking down our nose at those beneath us. We think of the the Pharisee and the tax collector, both praying, one accepted, one rejected. And here, I think we see clear indications that the psalmist is well aware that within his own heart is the propensity for falling away, for double-mindedness, for lukewarmness as well. We also see the necessity of keeping a long view on life to be faithful. It can be tempting to cast our lot with those who are lukewarm, to those who are double-minded, to those who seem to get the best of both worlds, the respectability and the morality of religion and the goods and pleasures of this world. But he keeps in his mind, and here is your blank, the right certainty, the fate, the end game of all of humanity. All, All those people you may be tempted to go after, to be like, there's ultimately two outcomes for mankind. You spurn all who go away from your statutes, for their cunning is in vain. All the wicked of the earth you discard like dross. Therefore, I love your testimonies. My flesh trembles for fear of you, and I'm afraid of your judgments. If if you're going to be faithful to the Lord, if you're not going to be pulled aside, you're going to need the right affections, the right confidence, the right devotion, the right desire, the right purpose. But you're also going to need to have a certainty that God will judge That's one of the ways I am able to get through the strange days we live in. I don't need to judge because God will judge. I don't need to balance all the scales because God will. Have have that confidence. It'll it'll help you persevere in injustice. It'll help you patiently endure suffering with the confidence of God balancing the scales and doing right. The right certainty, you spurn all who go astray from your statutes, for their cunning is in vain. Ultimately, God rejects the double-minded and the lukewarm. People can try to play games. They can try to be cunning. In fact, turn to Deuteronomy 29. I think I'll show you a picture of what this looks like, I think. But God is not mocked. He is not fooled. And we would do well to keep the end separation of all mankind in mind, both to motivate ourselves to be faithful and to endure when it appears as though those being faithful to the Lord are losing 
getting the short end of the stick. The double-mindedness, half-heartedness is a perennial problem for God's people. Here at the end of Deuteronomy, where the the law has been reiterated, um, blessings and curse comes out. And there's a particular warning at the end of the book here in in chapter 29. Verse 18. Beware, lest there be among you a man or woman or clan or tribe whose heart is turning away today from the Lord our God to go and serve the gods of those nations. Beware, lest there be among you a root bearing poisonous and bitter fruit. I think this is what Hebrews 12 is talking about. Beware a root of bitterness. And then he goes on to to redefine or to rename what that danger is. One who, when he hears the words of this sworn covenant, blesses himself in his heart, saying, I shall be safe, though I walk in the stubbornness of my heart. So let's get an idea of what this is. This is somebody hearing the covenant being read, one of the assembly of Israel, or one of the foreigners who's joined himself or herself to Israel. And they hear the covenant. And they know, they've, they've made a decision. This isn't someone struggling with sin. This is someone who knows inwardly, I'm going to do what I want. I'm going to go astray. And they bless themselves. I'll get away with it. It'll be okay. In, in modern parlance, Jesus will forgive me. It'll be okay. Right? I mean, let me read that again. I'll make sure I'm understanding this properly. Beware, lest there be among you a root bearing poisonous or bitter fruit, one who, when he hears the words of this sworn covenant, blesses himself in his heart, saying, I shall be safe, though I walk in the stubbornness of my heart. So we've got intentional, planned disobedience, telling himself, even though he's hearing the covenant, I'll be okay. I'll be safe. This is someone inwardly divided, someone who's double-minded. This will lead to the sweeping away of moist and dry alike. The Lord will not be willing to forgive him, but rather the anger of the Lord and his jealousy will smoke against that man, and the curses written in this book will settle upon him, and the Lord will blot out his name from under heaven. Be certain that those who are double-minded, who play games with the Lord, will either be disciplined here and now in this life, which is a sign of God's love, his chastening, or they will be cast and spurned far from him. You spurn all who go astray from your statutes. Their cunning is in vain. Whatever plans they have to get away with it, whatever plans they have to Serve two masters, will not work. I read a quote, I think it's by Spurgeon, just recently. The devil likes to tell us that after we sin, repentance will be easy. And then when that time comes, tells us it'll be impossible. We, we tell ourselves, I'll, I'll go astray now and later I'll fix up. I'll get right with the Lord later. Maybe. Maybe not. But know with certainty the future that awaits those who stray from God's law. There is no blessing, there is no advantage that you can receive right now to outweigh that. It's insanity to try to serve two masters. You will not succeed. You spurn all who go astray from your statutes for their cunning is in vain. Yes, I know you've figured out some way to do both. 
It will not work. Do not believe it. Do not listen to it. The right certainty. Next, the right perspective. All the wicked of the earth you discard like dross. Judgment for the Lord will not be difficult. It won't be a challenge. The final conflagration will not be much of a fight. And here, the judgment of the wicked is, is pictured like someone refining metal, simply taking the scum off the top of the dross and just casting it aside with no second thought. When the day of the Lord comes, when his judgment comes, that will be the fate of the wicked. All the wicked of the earth you discard like dross, which is the reason he loves the Lord's testimonies. I think, I think two reasons. One, rejoice in the fact that justice will be done. If you're seeing injustice being done around you, and good grief, we live in a day and age where everyone from all political stripes is claiming to see wrongs and injustices, and I'm not saying they're not right. All wrongs will be righted. There is a judge of the earth who will do right and be seen to do right. And we can take confidence and, and delight in God and his word precisely because we know he is not deceived, he is not fooled, he will do right, he will judge the earth. Another reason, I think, why the psalmist loves his testimonies is if that is the fate of the wicked, then good grief, I don't want to be the wicked. And I love your word. Because as we saw just in our last stanza, your word's a light to my feet. Well, how do I know I'm not going to walk off in some wicked path? Because I have God's word to tell me what's right and wrong. What's righteous and what's wicked. The right perspective. We, we need to keep in mind the fate of all mankind in the universe. Which brings us finally then to the right fear. The right fear. And, and here I believe we see that the things he said before don't come from a haughty self-righteous, smug, self-satisfied, arrogant position, but one of dependent trembling. My flesh trembles for fear of you, and I'm afraid of your judgments. Having the right fear. As he considers God's judgment, unlike the Pharisee and the tax collector who's thinking, yes, I praise you, Lord, that I'm not like him. He trembles in fear. And even as we, we can look at the coming judgments of God and rejoice that justice will be done, we tremble as well knowing that our, our hearts are evil, that were it not for the substitute and the sacrifice of the Lord Jesus Christ, we'd be in that camp as well. He trembles response to God's judgments. And in many respects, you need a controlling fear to outweigh the other fears in this world. You can fear man. I want to impress people. Fear the Lord that will rule that fear. Fearing God is taking him seriously, as weighty, as heavy. And as he considers God's final judgments, the fate of the wicked he trembles in fear for you, and I am afraid of your judgments. Fearing God is taking him seriously. This is the counsel at the end of Psalm 2. Remember the Psalm 2, the Lord establishes his Messiah. The Psalm ends, serve the Lord with fear. Rejoice 
with trembling. Kiss the son lest he be angry and you perish in the way. For his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. You you can fear all sorts of things in this world, or you can fear God. And if you fear God, the other fears of this world will be put in their right perspective. This is what it looks like to be faithfully following the Lord. It's not just loving him, but having other feelings towards those who are in opposition to him. It's having the right fellowship, the right friends, lest you too be taken away. It's, it's being loyally committed to your God, being confident in his justice. It's, it's a hard, hard line to walk, but God in this psalm has given us his word, given us this pattern. And so we're going to sing our closing song this morning. I'm going to call the worship team up. We have a word of prayer, and then we will. Lord God, um, help us to have the right affections, the right attitudes, the right um, motives, both to ourselves and to the world around us. Lord, guard us from self-righteousness, from condescension, from arrogance, and yet guard us also from friendship with the world. Guard us from hedging our bets, but may all of our hope entirely be in you and your word. May we look to you to defend us and uphold us. May we look to you to vindicate us. May we never forget the judgment that is coming, the the great cost by which we were spared from it. May we not be tempted to go astray, but to cleave to you, to tremble at your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Please stand as we sing Psalm 62.